Welcome to Who Runs This Park, a podcast where you are invited into the hearts and stories of those who have committed their careers to the protection and preservation of our great national parks. Who Runs This Park aims to be a catalyst for inspiration, highlighting all that goes into managing our national parks and building a sense of appreciation for the invaluable beauty, diversity, and history of our protected lands. Today, we get to hear the story of Cam Shawley, the Yellowstone National Park Superintendent. Yellowstone is the world's first national park and leading what many refer to as America's best idea. For those who don't know about Yellowstone, it spans Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho, and is known for its geothermal wonders, astonishing wildlife, and awe-inspiring wilderness. Cam himself has been superintendent of Yellowstone since 2018 and has an impressive background both inside and outside the National Park Service. Today, we'll get to dive into his career and also get a behind-the-scenes look at the challenges and joys and future-looking goals at his current position at one of the most renowned national parks. Cam, welcome to Who Runs This Park. It's a joy to have you here today. Thanks, Maddie. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Good to see you. One way I like to start the show and kind of start off conversations is just sharing one of the more unique situations you've had working in the National Park Service and then... From there, we'll dig into a little bit of your story and how you got to where you are. Yeah, you know, I think probably one of the most unique was dealing with the historic floods that we had here in Yellowstone last year. That was, I've, I've been in a lot of assignments across the country over the last 30 plus years. And that one sits probably at the top as far as challenges and yeah. seeing so many people come together for, you know, to get the park back online and, and support these economies and support employees and partners and things like that. So that was a terrific effort by a lot of people and, and probably is sitting at the top. And it happened in the 150th anniversary year of Yellowstone as well. Man. So that's a big one. There's multiple others, but that's probably the, the top challenge that I've faced uh, in the park service. Yeah. And I know you and I briefly talked about this before we started recording, but for, you know, people listening to the podcast, um, hearing about Cam's position specifically is actually what encouraged me to start this podcast. And it was actually last summer when the, it was like right after the floods had happened. And the context is some of our family friends are your, I guess, brother and sister-in-law, correct? Right. And I'm like, you know, all the different connections. I'm like, I have to make sure I'm saying the right wording, but our brother and sister-in-law of Cam and I think the timing we were having dinner with them was right after the floods and they were talking about everything that you had to do. I remember hearing, you know, there's only, I believe, four entrances into Yellowstone and two of those, or there's five, but then how many are accessible in the winter? Only two. Well, yeah, I mean, we go to an over snow for, for three of the entrances in the winter and then the two entrances in the north are uh, accessible by vehicles. Yeah, and I remember learning about that and just like, how you're having to manage that and prepare for the winter season, but then also dealing with like all the people trying to come to the park. And then also because it's a park, you want to restore things in a sustainable way and learning about all these intricacies. It for me was the first time I had learned about the superintendency role and then learning about all the intricacies that you had to deal with. I was floored and like literally couldn't stop talking about it all night. And my family was like, how do you, I don't know. It's just a job. And I was like, no, you don't understand. This is so cool. So yeah, I'd love to, I saw within 20 days, you're actually open, able to reopen 93% of the park. So I'd love to hear how you went about that, kind of how you assessed the damage and got all the troops ready to respond in 
sustainable, but also like fast ways? You know, I, I think for some context, you know, just like around the country, you know, we just come off of two relatively tough years with COVID and a lot of these economies that surround the park that rely on tourism were heavily impacted. Mm-hmm. And that. So we work very closely with the three states and the count, the five counties and the multiple communities from Jackson Hole to Cody to West Yellowstone to Gardner to Cook City that surround the park. About 96% of the parks in Wyoming, 3% in Montana, 1% in Idaho. Uh, about 70% of the visitors, though, come through the Montana entrances. And so mm. we get somewhere about 4 million, around 4 million visitors a year, a little more this year. And, you know, visitors spend close to a billion dollars, billion and a half dollars in communities within 50 miles of the park, Grand Teton and Yellowstone. So tourism is and a huge economic driver. And we get somewhere between 75 and 80% of our visitation in the summer months. And so to have the flood occur overnight on uh, the night of June 12th into the morning of June 13th and to have such catastrophic damage yeah, and to have a mindset shift in communities of, hey, we're about to have a great summer to no access in at least two of the five uh, entrances was, you know, a big shock. And it was really important that we, you know, assessed properly, made some really tough decisions in that recovery period and got the park, you know, 50% of the park reopened in eight days and over 93% opened in 20 days. And then the major road corridors that were blown out in the north were rebuilt in less than four months. So it's, uh, and that was a true team effort, uh, not just here in the park, but with our external partners. Yeah. That, um, especially with that context of kind of, I mean, you know, I, Grew up in Austin, so summer starts in like March, <laughs> but yeah. you know, in places like that, like June is like you know, it's still pretty chilly, probably the slower part of the season, and so June's busy. I mean, okay. June's not August okay. and July, but it's getting busy. It's ramping you know, up. We, we get close, you know, you know, million people a month in in July, and close to that in in August and June and September are you know seven eight hundred thousand people a month. Yeah, that's a lot. So it's. It's not the busiest, but it's getting busy. We probably had somewhere between 10 and 12,000 people in the park that that evening. You know, they too woke up to, you know, whether they were at a campground or in a hotel to a large weather system that wreaked serious havoc on a lot of our facilities and and roads and bridges and things like that. And so I think one of the the biggest success stories there was the, the team of our maintenance workers and law enforcement staff were out in the middle of the night dealing with rock slides and mud slides and things oh, like wow. that before the roads before the roads blew out and actually closed those roads proactively to public travel, which unquestionably saved lives. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Had they not done that, there's a good likelihood that we would have had people just driving off roads into eighty feet into raging rivers. Oh my so gosh. That was I think something that was a, a real positive. We did not have a loss of life or major injury. And, um, yeah, that's really great. You know, that was due to the actions of, of those those team members that uh, took it upon themselves to take those proactive measures. And so were the roads that were proactively closed, were they ones that management knows that they're prone to flooding? No, this park is not historically, uh, I think the last kind of major flood that we had was in 1997. And for reference, for people that know the Yellowstone River, uh, the last major flood event was 97. I think the cubic feet per second, so the water volume traveling down the river corridor was somewhere around 31,000 cubic feet per second. In this flood in uh, last year, the, the CFS was almost 52,000. Oh, and wow. So, yeah, so close so to 20, double, 000, actually. Well, 20,000. CFS increase from the last record flood. So that was, that's a 
and it never been recorded that high ever. What were some of the first actions? I'm assuming getting people out of the park maybe was a first step or kind of how in those first, yeah. you know, 48 hours did you start mobilizing? Well, we, we mobilized immediately. Right. Uh, what was difficult initially is we, we lost power. Mm. Um, we had, you know, not the, the greatest uh, amount of information right away on the extent of the damage because the floodwaters were still occurring. So there was still a lot of damage that was happening into that morning. We knew we'd close the northern part of the park. We started to get the reports and some of the pictures from some of the flood damage in the road corridors. And these are the corridors, the north entrance, which is between Gardner, Montana and Mammoth. Uh, here where headquarters is, and then the Northeast Corridor, which is out toward Lamar Valley to Cook City, mm. Silvergate, Montana. So once we started getting those reports and seeing some of the pictures, realizing those roads were clearly heavily damaged, uh, we made a decision to evacuate the northern end of the park. And if people have been here that are listening, it's the, the, the road system is kind of a figure eight. There's a northern loop and there's a southern loop. Mm -hmm. And we decided to push all the visitors that were up north to the south because obviously okay. they couldn't get out the two road corridors and so we could do better damage assessments and make sure that everybody was safe and that kind of thing later into that day we we decided to go ahead and evacuate and close the entire park so we we evacuated i think you know 10 or twelve thousand people in about 24 wow. hours we had you know we operate about eight wastewater water systems in the park this mammoth here which is where we have major hotel operations and headquarters and residents for employees. We ran our wastewater through in a pipe that went under the road to Gardner's system. So that pipe was severed in five locations when the road collapsed. Mm. So we were somewhere around 250,000 gallons of wastewater were pouring into the Gardner River that morning. And so, you know, it was a lot. So it was accounting for employees, making sure employees are safe. It was accounting right. for visitors, making sure they're safe. It was evacuating the park. I was working with Northwestern Energy to get the power uh, restored. It was using our teams to figure out how to divert that quarter million gallons of wastewater that was pouring into the river. Those were kind of our, our primary initial priorities. You know, we executed those very well. Uh, the wastewater was diverted within, I think, 30 hours. The power was back on in 40 hours. Uh, we had very good damage assessments from the air that day, the 13th, with our helicopter. Mm. Uh, we were able to start immediately communicating with the communities about how they were doing and then started setting very specific short-term and long-term objectives for, right. you know, damage assessments around the park, how fast could certain damage damaged areas get repaired. And so that was, that was basically the first 48 to, you know, 60 hours or so. Yeah. So how do you divert waste? Is it like trying to catch the broken? I've just never thought of that. Like trying to catch, I guess, the severed areas and set up new pipes or? No, we were, we were, it's about to be the only time you, you hear me say that I was glad that there was some 1930s infrastructure that hadn't been removed, but we had back in the thirties, the way that they dealt with wastewater, obviously this is prior to a lot of the environmental legislation that we have in place now is the wastewater went into a trench mm. and into these ponds called percolator ponds. And that's how they treated wastewater here between 1930s and early 1960s. Okay. Until more modern plants were built and those that trench in those ponds had never been taken out. So we were able to go back and retrench the trench and divert the wastewater into the trench into the old 1930s ponds. And okay. that, that got us through last summer and the winter while we built a $40 million uh, wastewater system here in Mammoth, which is which was put online last summer. Okay, nice. 
And that, I guess, is rewiring some of the piping that got damaged in the floods? All the piping down to Gardner is still blown out, so we're not, okay. that's not usable. When we decide on where our permanent road is going to go, uh, we'll look at options to rerun the pipe back down to Gardner. Oh, uh, I right see. Right now, we're, we're, we'll use the plant that we built here oh, over the last nice. year. We realized pretty quickly that <clears throat> the southern loop had been impacted less than the northern loop. And um, one thing I'll back up on, just for people that are wondering how, how this set up in, in the first place, is... We got more snow in April and May that year than we did in January, February, and March. And so when you oh, get wow. that kind of late snow, it doesn't really have time to set up a snowpack. You know, whereas a normal year you have, you know, a solidified snowpack and you have gradually warming temperatures and it melts the snow slowly through okay. the spring. Um, we had so much late snow that when we had a, a major rainstorm that came came in and dropped four to five inches of rain, melted that four to five inches of snow. And so within about 48 hours, you know, somewhere between between eight and 10 inches of water came roaring down the mountains right. into the rivers. And that's what, that's how the flood happened. For okay. People that are curious. But we were able to repair most of the Southern Loop. We had Federal Highway engineers and others in the um, in the park very quickly to assess damage. Um, we got this. We, we figured out that we could get the Southern Loop open relatively quickly. We get a million people per month in the park. Uh, you can't put a million people per month into half the park's road mileage. No. So we worked with the communities every day to try to determine how to best reopen slowly or gradually and not overwhelm the Southern Loop. We built a reservation okay. system in three days. Wow. With so we partnership sold- of recreation.gov or... Yeah, rec.gov helped us, and then a lot of our visitor use folks in the okay. park and regional office in Denver. Uh, we socialized that that reservation system with the gateway communities. They did not want it. Mm. They were mostly the hotel owners, Airbnb, VRBO owners, were afraid that people trying to get a reservation on the new system wouldn't be able to get reservations that matched their accommodations on the reservations they already had, and they thought there'd be mass cancellations. So uh, I basically threw out a, a question to the gateway communities and the business owners about, hey, okay, if you don't want the reservation system, what do you want? Yeah. And a suggestion from a hotel owner in West Yellowstone was that we use this a model that was used back in 1976 for gas rationing, where the, the last digit of your license plate was odd. You could get gas on odd days of the calendar. If it was even, mm. you could get gas on even days of the calendar. And he said, why don't you use that as an entry process? So you oh, interesting. an odd day of the year and you have an odd license plate, you can get in the park if it's even, and that should cut traffic in half, right. theoretically. And I thought that was kind of a crazy idea initially, and then realized, you know what, it actually might be brilliant. And um, socialized that concept with Jackson Hole and Cody and West Yellowstone, and they liked it. And so on, I think that, so the flood happened July 13th. I think on June 20, I mean, June 13th, on June 22nd, we implemented what we call the alternating license plate system on the Southern Loop of Yellowstone. It was incredibly successful, simple, predictable. Yeah. And uh, didn't didn't require a bunch of, you know, online reservations. Scrambling and things like that. So, you know, we did get some calls from some of our rental car partners who were who asked us to stop that system initially because apparently people were calling up and demanding a guarantee that they could get an odd or even license Mm. plate. And the rental car company is like, well, we're not set up for that. We don't do it that way. It worked really well for eight days. Then we got the Northern Loop opened. So we were able, we dropped that license plate system and we had, you know, somewhere just over 93% of the park opened at, around uh, July 2nd, I believe. So, wow. yeah, good team effort there. 
And then we got to work very quickly on rebuilding these road corridors with okay. the federal highways partners. We had great support out of Washington and Congress and the states and got great contractors on the two corridors and they were able to rebuild. We, we built a new road here between here and Gardner, and then they repaired the road between here and Cook City by the end of October of wow. 2022. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, I mean, it's a bummer that it, that it was such a drastic flood, but a very unique experience and just kind of seeing things come together and people really trying to, like you said, like re, be very dedicated in reopening the park and problem solving and quick action. Yeah. We ended up, you know, we're normally at 4 million, 4.2 million visitors per year. We were able to salvage last summer to the best degree possible and we ended up with 3.2 million. So it was a million short of normal, but it was, much better than had the park been closed all summer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, had it been closed, you probably would have had like a million visitors, if even, for the whole year. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm curious of jumping back a little bit, actually, you know, talking about that was a very much more recent thing. But I know also in researching and preparing, I actually learned that you're a third generation park service manager, which one of my favorite things of doing these podcasts is understanding and like learning about everyone's different path into the park service and their path to becoming a superintendent. And, you know, it, it's totally varied. It's some people who the superintendency uh, and joining the park service was later in their career. Some people started out right after college or before that. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience growing up in and around the national park service and like what those I think it was both your dad and your grandfather were in the Park Service. Yeah, well, after World War II, my grandfather got out of the Army and started working for the National Park Service, became the chief ranger of Big Bend National Park in the late 40s, and then was chief ranger at Shenandoah National Park uh, in Virginia, and then superintendent of Badlands National Park in South Dakota on uh, the mid mid to late fifties. And so my father followed in his footsteps, started as a seasonal firefighter for the park service in uh, 1964 and worked in many different capacities, ultimately became the the chief ranger of of Yellowstone, which is one of the division leads here. And, you know, I was fortunate to be able to grow up in parks like Yosemite and Crater Lake National Park and Hawaii Volcanoes and, and finished my high school. I went to, you know, multiple high schools, but finished high school actually here in Yellowstone and Gardner, Montana. So had that kind of legacy experience in, in being, yeah. being connected to national parks and the importance of national parks to our to our country. And I think it's one of the more noble missions in the world. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's great. I went in the military after high school and got out of the military and started working here in a backcountry seasonal maintenance position. Oh, at, um, oh, what was it? Thoroughfare. Yeah, I was reading that. Thoroughfare... There was something I was really interesting. It's the most remote. It's one of the most remote areas in the lower 48. Yeah, like the farthest place from any roads, right? Yeah. So I lived down there in the summer of 1990-91. And then from there, and that's a fantastic place. I've been back five times. Something that I found interesting when researching Yellowstone more, and I did, I've been to Yellowstone, I think when I was in middle school or early high school, maybe we did. My family flew into Salt Lake City and then drove to the Tetons, Jackson Hole, and then Yellowstone. But what I learned is like most of the visitors only see, I'm not going to get the percentages right, so I'll rely on you for this, but it's like so many of the visitors don't see a huge percentage of the park, but how there's like all these, um, you know, like you you said, 4 million visitors, but then probably the visitors to that area that you managed is 
2% of that maybe? I mean. Oh, no, it's not, it's not even close to that. So the park is 2.2 million acres for reference. That's bigger than Rhode Island and Delaware put together. Um, less than 2,000 acres are pavement. And somewhere above 95% of the visitors never get more than a half mile away from their car. So the majority of our visitation is in a very, very small percentage of the park. And, you know, um, you know, I've been back to thoroughfare five times since I've been superintendent. It's a special place to me. And um, several of those trips, you know, you're, you're seeing, you know, you're talking about 70, 80 miles round trip, uh, you know, maybe less than 10 people you see, wow. and, you know, no noticeable difference or increase in numbers of people seen back there now than 32 years ago when I worked back there in the, in the trips that I've made. So, you know, there's a narrative out there that the parks are being overrun by visitors. There are obviously areas in the park that are very congested, like Old Faithful right. and Midway Geyser Basin and the Canyon Rims. And those are things we've got to manage. We can talk about that. But overall, the ecosystem health-wise is in better condition now than when Yellowstone became a park 150 years ago, 151 yeah. years ago. So it's important for us to focus on visitation and how to manage right. it appropriately and what the impacts of visitation are. But people need to remember that that impact is in a very small percentage of the park. And Yellowstone is the only place on the face of the planet that has this level of wildlife and visitor interface. You can go you can go to Africa maybe or Alaska and see more wildlife, but no people. Right. You can go to plenty of places and see more people, but no wildlife. This is one of the very few few places in the world where you have so much wildlife and so many visitors interfacing and that's got to be managed very carefully as well. What was your experience at Thoroughfare? I think what I had read was you were doing trail maintenance mainly. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So were you out like all summer, were you backpacking typically or what is the trail maintenance so we had process a base, look like? We had a base like? camp. We slept in tents. Okay. We had a kind of a central camp that we used and then we would hike to different work sites, uh, you know, from our, our base camp every day. Okay. And was yeah. that being your first, I think you did this, if I'm remembering correctly, after you were in the military, correct? Right. So did you, because you had been living in Yellowstone before going into the military and when you were in high school, were you drawn to go back or is it more just like where you found a role? Um, you know, I, I really had a great connection with Yellowstone when I came here in high school. Dad was still here. Oh, nice. So I came back from the military and, you know, it was kind of a, a natural progression to, to try it out. I wasn't sure okay. if, um, if I was going to do the park service as a career at that point. I had no intention of being superintendent of Yellowstone or anything right. at that point. But, uh, you know, it, it was a great way to start off in a post you know, military career. Yeah. After having that summer experience, I guess, at what point did you make the decision to more intentionally be like, you know what, I actually do want to pursue a longer career within the park service. So in the park service, you know, we've got different disciplines, resources, right. facilities, maintenance, education, interpretation, law enforcement, visitor resource protection. So I came up to the visitor resource protection rank and went to Yosemite as a backcountry ranger in 1992 and then moved into a a variety of different jobs there over the next couple of years and kind of at that point realized it's something that I was interested in doing longer term. For those first couple of years where you, I've learned that a lot of times folks start out as seasonal workers and then you probably have to have a couple of seasons under your belt to then transition into that full-time role. So I'm assuming that was a similar experience for you of those first couple summers That's in right. Yosemite were as a seasonal worker, I'm assuming this summer or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, most seasonals, the seasonal workforce in, in the National Park Service is essential since most of our parks have seasonal visitation spikes. Right. In fact, most yeah. of our Western parks, the majority of the visitation, as I said earlier, you know, usually come between May and September-ish. And the seasonal workforce is 
critical to the operations of the right. National Park Service. And so it, it's, a, it's a great a great way to introduce people to the Park Service to see if that's something they're interested in. And then we normally pick um, most of our permanent employees from the seasonal ranks. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's a good way for people to try out and see if it's something they like. Yeah, for sure. Park Service obviously needs the extra help in, in, <laughs> in certain times of the year. And it's a great pathway to um, permanent employment in Park Service. Yeah, the, something I've read about, not just at Yellowstone, but actually at a lot of parks, is that housing seems to be a hard issue for like housing yeah. seasonal or even permanent park employees. Um, and I know it's been talked about at Yellowstone also. But what I was curious about is you've had experience across you know, being regional director and then working at other parks. So I'm curious if you feel like any parks have a really good handle on that. And if you want to, like, are there any parks that you want to almost mimic or use as an example for implementing at Yellowstone? Well, we're setting, this, we're setting the standard right now in, in housing for the entire country. Oh, cool. Yeah. Tell me about that. That sounds awesome. Yeah, so we have somewhere around 500 housing units in the park. Inside actual, like, park boundaries? Okay. And we need to house somewhere between 800 and 1,000 people per year. You know, we've got a couple different goals in our strategy. Number one is we had, of that 500 units, we had somewhere around 70, 65 to 70 trailers from the 60s, 70s, and 80s that were in horrible condition that we were housing, primarily seasonals. Okay. And... Uh, some of the worst housing that I've seen in my career. Mm. And so we, with the support of Washington, were able to secure funds and, and we just finished this summer replacing all trailers with new housing units, brand new. Are you, are they being replaced as trailers or like being rebuilt as? No, they're, they're, they're high quality modular houses. Oh, cool. So they're not, we didn't replace trailers with trailers, we replaced trailers with um, housing. And we went out to the employees in, in 2018, 19, when I first got here and said, kind of, what do you want in housing? Right. And they wanted basic things. They wanted their own bathroom. Right. They wanted their own washer dryer. They wanted a bigger porch or whatever the case is. And so when we started looking at, you know, we have a very short build season here because of the heavy winters that we have. Mm. So it, take, it can take a really long time to build normal stick build houses. We started exploring the modular housing market, which has come a really long way in the last 10 years and a huge proponent. What does that mean? So it's basically we, de we design houses to our specs with a company that gets under contract with the federal government and a modular housing company, in this case, the one we've been using is in Redwood Falls, Minnesota. They manufacture the houses to our specs in a controlled environment indoors. Okay. And oh. then they, they truck those houses in halves out to our locations and then put them together. Okay. And stitch them okay. together. And that's the model that we've used the last three or four years to get the trailers replaced. So we've got excellent progress moving on that front. We've rehabilitated somewhere around another 200 non-trailer houses. So replacing 1980s appliances and carpet and roofs oh, and siding nice. and you know, insulation and things like that. Through the Great American Outdoors Act, we received... We've been very fortunate on uh, a variety of different fronts, but um, you know, we received a significant amount of money to restore some of the historic houses that we have here in Yellowstone. Oh, cool. Um, and then the biggest challenge that we face, and not just here in Yellowstone, but around the park service, is any major park that's got expensive gateway communities uh, where there are either uh, limited houses available for sale, too expensive. Yeah. Or rentals have turned to Airbnbs and VRBOs that can, you know, Employees can no longer come into those communities and buy or, or rent 
right. need a place to live. So we'll be actually looking at expanding the number of houses that we have in the park to accommodate and offset some of the major changes that we've seen okay. in local housing markets. So across the country, it's like putting some of those housing systems within the park boundaries because of the gateway communities becoming more expensive. Well, I mean, you said Grand Teton is another great example of a park. It's Jackson Hole is one of the most expensive communities in the country. And if you're trying to attract a, a workforce to run and manage the park and the park's programs, you have to have a place for them to live. And they're not going to yeah. be able to afford some place in Jackson Hole. And, so, you know, that's if you look at Gardner, Montana, you know, even we have a somewhere around 100 employees that have houses in Gardner okay. that is right five miles here from headquarters. It's outside the park. A lot of these employees bought their houses in the late 90s, early 2000s when it was very affordable. Right. Housing market's gone through the roof. In one case, one of our our plumbing supervisors who just retired, very important job, by the way, um, bought a house for 175000 in 1999 on the Yellowstone wow. River and just got offered multiple wow. millions of dollars for it. So what? good for Claude. Yeah, good for Claude return. that he got but not good for when we try to replace Claude. So Claude's replacement can't afford Claude's house. And, yeah. uh, but we need that job filled. Where does that person live? And yeah. so far, the best solution is for us to actually add some inventory above and beyond what we had in the past into right. the Carson, uh, you know, housing portfolio. Cool. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, I can see that aside from the small percentage of roles where, you know, like your first experience at Yellowstone where you were camping all summer, you know, that's not the... Not the norm. Yeah, um, that's not the norm. And there's a different yeah. set of expectations now than yeah. 30 years ago. I know some of the other roles that you had leading up into the superintendency at Yellowstone was, I think this was at NDC, you were the associate director for visitor and resource protection, correct? That's right. I learned that you helped implement a national employee safety strategy. So I was curious about what that entailed, um, because obviously it's a very noble thing for those who aren't familiar, my understanding, and obviously, Kim, you'll have more context, but that this was able to dramatically reduce employee fatalities across the Bureau. Yeah, unfortunately, we, well, it's a team effort. It wasn't something that wasn't just me, but it was primarily driven by, at that point, you know, 20, you know, 10, 20 years of us having a substantial number of employee fatalities in a, in a variety of different disciplines. Right. Um, maintenance workers, volunteers, law enforcement officers, whatever the case is. And I was a superintendent of a park parkway called the Natchez Trace uh, Parkway, which is in Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi. And it's 450 miles, a couple hundred employees on that parkway. And what I realized is there was no real guidebook for how superintendents should set up safety programs in their park units. Mm. Kind of like every superintendent would try to do the best job that they could, but there was really no, there's no way of kind of baselining how someone was doing in right. certain areas right. and make that consistent across, you know, well over 400 units of the national park system. And so the effort that we made in Washington was to try to provide a, a more consistent way to measure, put the right safety tools and mechanisms in place and measure uh, success and then use a lot of both private sector and public sector proven practices and safety uh, to try to incorporate those better into the National Park Service Safety Program. Right. And, um, you know, we have been successful in many areas, of especially lowering the numbers of fatalities uh, across the system. But, um, you know, we've got a long way to go there, just like most organizations do. Yeah. I was talking to Suzanne, who's the superintendent of Lake Clark up in Alaska, and she was sharing that for that park in particular, like the only way in and out, you can take a boat to some areas, but it's like mainly by plane. 
And sometimes right. people will just based on the weather, like you plan to go for a day, but you can't, the plane can't land because of a variety of weather conditions for several days. And so it's like, yeah. you know, there is an inherent danger just with a lot of these places because of the remoteness and the wilderness and all of these things. And so, yeah, building out a system and like you said, continuing to improve it to continue to make those conditions safer is really valuable because there are just yep. a lot of, I forget where, or I was learning about, I've gotten into backcountry skiing recently. And the big thing with that is there are inherent risks in doing it. So it's all about managing the risks. It's like, you can't not have the risks be there, but you have to manage them in a way that does produce, you know, safety to the extent that you can. Yeah. We, you know, back in the 07, 09, 10, uh, we got, we adopted a Coast Guard model referred to as operational leadership, which really mm. works to empower uh, employees with risk-based decision-making and, mm. um, you know, puts more of a, hopefully, an onus on uh, mitigating risk, understanding when the risk is too great for right. whatever you're doing and making the appropriate decisions to either not do it or to mitigate it. And that's, that's a challenge when you've got a mission like ours, so many diverse parts, you've got a very committed workforce. It's very mission-driven and trying to, you know, instill a concept of you don't have to do everything it's okay to say no sometimes or there's different ways to do things that uh that can be a hard culture to change but operational leadership's really um i think has helped us significantly at least understanding where risk exists and having a more open and honest conversation about what we need to be doing to protect employees better yeah the i forget who i was talking to this about it probably was suzanne um but in terms of like changing the culture of the employees and the National Park Service, it's also empowering visitors who are going out into the backcountry and empowering them to make those decisions also with a risk mindset because it's not very, at least right now, like our culture is not very, or it's very achievement driven. And, you know, so it's like, I want to do this loop or I want to get to the top of this mountain. And, you know, if the conditions, like the weather, things are out of our control that are stronger than us as humans. And we are like powerless in those situations. Sometimes the right decision is to be like, you know what, like we're actually not going to summit today because it's not safe. And so it's, I think that culture is really, can be really dangerous even for visitors. Exactly. Yeah. We have a lot of visitor fatalities in the park service also every year. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. What is, I mean, that one's, how do you think that agency is addressing? I know there is a lot of resources, like when I've gone into the back country and like all the resources and reading and preparing, but are there similar like strategies that the park service is employing to try to increase that knowledge for visitors? Well, first and foremost, what I'd say is that um, the biggest onus is on the user. Um, there is personal responsibility involved in any moderate to high risk thing you're going to do and even low risk. But um, what I see and what I've seen over my career is a lot of complacency. Uh, when these accidents happen, um, a lot of times in the highest risk areas like climbing El Capitan in, in Yosemite, you know, we've had fatalities on El Cap, but proportional to the number of climbers that climb it, they know that a mistake will cause you your your life potentially. So yeah. there's more preparation. There's obviously the significant skill set that's required to even embark on that. Yeah. A skill set I do not have. <laughs> Climbing Mount Rainier or, you know, those types of things. So then you get into, you know, the 
the father and the son that gets in the canoe and it's nice and sunny and calm on Yellowstone Lake. And an hour later, there's four foot swell, you know, waves and they weren't ready or, you know, th- those are, or people that go out in the backcountry conditions in deep Yellowstone and don't understand what they're getting themselves into or um, the importance of bear safety or, or anything like that. And so we do our best to ensure that people using the backcountry understand the risk, uh, ways to mitigate the risk. But ultimately, you know, that's a, so that's a responsibility that, that people have to take very seriously. And as we've seen in many, many cases, if they don't, it can cost them their lives. Yeah, my sister and I, and this is like a personal example of continuing to, it was humbling because we were in Mount Rainier and, you know, it ended up being totally fine, which I think can be the danger sometimes if you're like, oh, we got away with it. It's fine. But it was eye-opening in a, a more gentle sense, but there was wildfire smoke from the Cascades and, you know, we were just on a short backpacking trip, but it was a big eye-opener because we were like, how would we actually know if we needed to evacuate? Like we don't have an evacuation plan. Like how it was just so much of the time, especially right now, we rely on our phones and we rely on all these things. And it's, right. you know, when you go into the backcountry, you need a, a plan of how you're going to contact people and communicating, like when you're supposed to return and all those things. But it was, for me, a really good reminder. And thankfully, like, there was no damage in that moment. But it's like, even more clear of like, I have to have a very clear communication plan. And just, it was like another, like the fire safety aspect wasn't something I had actually thought of before. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a lot to think about. And part of it is exciting to be educated in these areas and feel confident and risk manage, but it's a lot that you have to kind of Mm -hmm. be on top of just to even go for like a two day trip. Yeah. And someone's, you know, you've got to have a workforce that's skilled and capable enough to rescue these people. And yeah bad things happen and that happens a lot throughout the year, you know, yeah. um, and, you know, that gets into, you know, our ability to recruit and retain good talent and operate these parks at an effective level to deal with pretty much any type of situation that comes our way. Yeah. I know another part of your history before being at Yellowstone was as Midwest regional director. And I saw that over that time period, you hired over 30 superintendents. So I would love mm-hmm. to hear what that process was typically like. And was it you know, is that a normal amount of superintendents in that time frame that you served as regional director? Or was there, you know, just a higher spike of? Yeah, I mean, it's a myth. There's, there's a lot of vacancies at the time when I assumed the job. There was also a lot of people that retired. And so it just happened that there was a significant number of vacancies. And yeah, Midwest is a great region. I've worked a lot in the Pacific West region, Intermountain, Southeast region, Washington, but I'd never really paid too much attention to the parks in the Midwest until I was regional director there. And it's, I think it's got some of the, the best and most diverse parks uh, in the system. Yeah. You know, all the parks, 61 parks from the Dakotas to Ohio, Canada to Arkansas, St. Louis Arch to Isle Royal to Badlands to Hot Springs to Cuyahoga Valley. You know, so it's a really, really great region. And, you know, some of those areas aren't that well known in the system. So hiring superintendents into places that people haven't really heard of or a lot of remote assignments also in that region can be challenging, but we hired some fantastic superintendents that still to this day are, are doing a great job in many parks yeah. in, in the Midwest. Yeah, the that's also been something, it's a goal of this podcast, but it's also been something I've learned of. I mean, like you said, obviously before starting this podcast, I knew of Yellowstone, I knew of Yosemite, I knew of the big names, and I think they get a lot of attention for good reason. I mean, they're beautiful places kind of that jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring beauty. But I've been, like, I just feel really lucky and fortunate to have learned also 
more about each of these other parks that maybe I didn't, you know, I'd heard of, but didn't know where it was or didn't know much about it. And just the diversity of all the park sites and the value that they all bring. So it's been really fun to talk to the big the big players, the high visible names like Yellowstone, and also maybe some parks that don't have as much recognition in the park service. Yeah. Moving into Yellowstone specifically, so I know you've been there since 2018 and we've talked about it in a couple different lights, but it seems like there's been a lot of decisions surrounding different species populations and the management regarding, you know, whether that's bison or wolves or like I've read of different fish populations. Do you feel like those decisions have been more common or unique to being at Yellowstone or are these things that you dealt with at other sites within the park service? Well, I think it's aspects are, are similar to other sites. Um, probably not the, the total wide range of species management that we have here in the Yellowstone ecosystem. And, uh, you know, I, I, I tell the story regularly, but it's important for people to understand that he also became a park in 1872 um, before the states of Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho were even states. Oh, wow. And you think about the, not a single member of Congress that voted for the Yellowstone Park Act in 1872 had ever stepped foot in this place. And you're talking about you know, seven seven years after the Civil War, and Ulysses S. Grant is the president. There was no no such thing really as or there's no con conversations around conservation or um, ecosystem protections or climate change or you know any of these things that we we talk about regularly today. Thinking about the miracle that it was that, you know, this area was set aside, primarily on expedition reports and, and paintings that were done here and then taken back to Washington. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, I'll talk about some American Indian viewpoints on that later, but because it's not all positive right. in, in, in the eyes of, of the American Indian nations. But I think that you look at for several years, and this is right in the middle of, you know, pretty significant westward expansion, the amount of poaching and the amount of damage being done to the park for that from 1872 to about 1876 was very substantial mm. uh, to the point where the U.S. Cavalry was brought in to protect the park in 1886. And was that the buff Buffalo soldiers? No, I mean, those are more like Sequoia and Yosemite. Okay. Um, there, you know, there were some Buffalo soldiers, but the 1886 to 1916 was basically the park was managed by the army and then it was handed back over wow. to civilian control in 1918. But we screwed up things really badly. We killed every predator and that was the government policy for the most part. So we extirpated the wolves. We you know, we killed thousands and thousands of bison to the point where, you know, there was less than 25 animals in the park, wow. killed grizzlies, mountain lions, you name it. We had very significantly negative, significant negative impacts on this place. And, you know, you fast forward to the 1960s, you know, we're feeding grizzly bears out of the garbage dumps and literally letting people line up in their cars at garbage dumps and feed, feed bears oh out of their gosh. cars. And that's only 50 years ago, 55 yeah. years ago. Wow, so it's that's not that long. Yeah. And so when I say that the ecosystem's in better condition now than than, than it has been since Yellowstone's become a park, is is because of a lot of hard work that's happened in the yeah. last fifty years, especially. You know, we kind of started getting serious in the late sixties, early seventies about environmental legislation, National Environmental Policy Act, or the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, or um, Endangered Species Act, 
and started recognizing a lot of our previous actions had taken their toll on on the health of, of these ecosystems and we needed to do better. And so the superintendent in the mid-90s, um, well, early 90s, mid to mid-90s, two different superintendents really focused heavily on restoring wolves to Yellowstone, which is probably the singular most uh, successful wildlife restoration effort in the history of, of America. And, wow. you know, there are people that will argue that point, obviously, but I, I firmly believe that it brought the ecosystem back into balance in many, many ways. We had an ungulate po- population that was out of control. It was having significant impacts on other species. Uh, we had, you know, very low grizzly numbers. Did the wolves help increase the bison and grizzly numbers? No. So the, the wolves reduced, for instance, would take elk. When there's not predators on the landscape, ungulates grow disproportionately. There's yeah. nothing to control population naturally. That's why you have hunting seasons in different states for you know deer and elk and other other species. That those populations have to be managed and controlled. In Yellowstone, it's mostly a natural management process. You've got to have the right predator prey balance on the on the landscape. Without wolves, the elk population just in northern Yellowstone probably exceeded over twenty thousand elk. And when you have that wow. many elk in, a, in an area. All they're doing is basically eating every cottonwood, willow, you know, the the landscape of northern Yellowstone was, you know, no aspens, destroying and destabilizing riverbanks, a huge number of peripheral impacts because of that. When you put wolves back into place, those elk are now on the run on a regular basis. You know, not too long after the restoration, that elk population dropped from over 20,000 to probably about 7,500 to 8,000, wow. uh, which is a much more balanced number. Yeah. Uh, and because of that, also the willows came back, the cottonwoods came back, aspens came back, you know, beavers are back. There are a lot of species that rely on the right balance of, of species in, in the ecosystem. The grizzly bears obviously put on the endangered species list. That was that's been very successful, and you know we've gone from probably 200 grizzlies back in the you know 80s and 90s to over a thousand in the Greater Yellowstone wow. ecosystem. Yeah. You know, so a lot of good success stories there. And, um, you know, bison continue to be a, a challenge to manage. Uh, about 60% of the bison carry a disease called brucellosis, which can induce abortions in cattle under the right conditions. Is that the chronic wasting disease or is that a different? No, a different. that's a different disease. Okay. You know, we, we work closely with uh, the state of Montana and USDA and others uh, when bison migrate out of the park to figure out how to manage that population mm. as effectively as possible. And if a lot of different opinions on how that should look. Same with wolves and other species. And then we're doing a significant amount of fish restoration, native fish restoration across the park. You know, we just did a big event the other night on white bark pine, which is probably one of the less known but keystone species in the ecosystem that are becoming, you know, where climate change is significantly impacting their populations. Mountain pine beetle, a, a disease called, a uh, fungus called blister rust, which kills the trees. Um, and working with other agencies and partners like the American Forest um, USDA and the Forest Service to try to come up with a strategy to improve how we're managing white bark pine and um, regenerating white bark pine. You know, so I think overall it's it's, it's been a huge success story, but there's yeah. a long way to go to not, you know, we've got a massive amount of uh, terrestrial invasive species continuing to come into the park that we need to be very cognizant of and have the right strategies to address, you know, a new introduction of aquatic invasive species that could be right. very threatening to natives, things like that. What are the most common ways that I guess both these terrestrial and then aquatic species are introduced into the environment? Well, if people have heard of a quagga mussel, um, 
that's oh, a, on the boats, right? That has very significant impacts. Uh, this year, our one of our aquatic uh, invasive species inspection teams detected quagga mussels on a boat that was about to launch into Yellowstone Lake. Wow! Before it launched, and then uh, this team was so good that they proactively they denied the launch. They called down to Grand Teton and warned them this guy might try to launch down there. And sure enough, he tried to launch in Jackson Lake. So that's that's a really big problem for potential problem with having motorized, um, especially inboard motors. And is it just that these mussels are, or these like species are in a different body of water and the species like settle on the They just have the very, they, they, well, I mean, so there's, if you've got a native ecosystem, that ecosystem has been constructed to rely on basically the native species within the right. ecosystem. Right. So when you start introducing things like lake trout, which we have a major problem with in Yellowstone Lake, and we've been spending $2 million a year oh my gosh. for the last 10 years to eradicate lake trout, because lake trout eat cutthroat, kill cutthroat trout, which are native, which grizzlies and ospreys and many other species rely on. Right. And, um, you know, so the biggest issue with the natives, non-native species is they normally have substantially negative impacts on the native species, whether it's aquatic mm-hmm. or terrestrial. And that's probably one of the single biggest challenges we'll face in the future. Do you think in Yellowstone or just across all like across national the parts? System, across the country, across yeah. and around the world in many ways. Yeah. yeah. It's cool to hear that reintroducing the wolves and then the other work that you've been doing since then in Yellowstone has had really positive impacts. Yeah. It's been big. It's a team effort. We're all here for a short amount of time. And um, try to do the best that you can. And the next superintendent and the next team continues, hopefully, to carry on and protect the progress that's been made. And current, and you know, like you said, people feeding grizzly bears out of out of garbage cans was like 50 years ago. So hopefully, the education and knowledge will continue of like how to better be stewards of our environment. Yeah, exactly. So you had mentioned, you know, there's the history of Yellowstone being established as the first national park, but you know, there is that other side of the story with Native Americans, and I would love to hear some of the different ways that you're managing those relationships with um, like native tribal communities around Yellowstone. Well, we have 27 affiliated American Indian tribes, tribes that have a cultural historical connection to um, Yellowstone in, in, in one way or another. And, um, you know, we've historically had good relationships with tribes. Right. Um, and it partnered on, on things over many decades. We use the one fiftieth as a point in time last year to really try to um, improve our engagement with American Indian tribes and really build stronger relationships. You know, and that led to a, a great initiative we started last year and we did it again this year. It'll probably become a permanent uh, initiative, which is the establishment of a tribal heritage center at Old Faithful. Oh, cool. And, uh, yeah. And so that, that center I think last year had 30 different tribal scholars and artists that rotate in different weeks of the summer and they engage, you know, thousands and thousands of visitors directly. National Park Church has a, you know, important role in telling America's history, the good, bad, and the ugly. Yeah. No one can tell the story of the tribes like the tribes can. So it's been, you know, this year we had actually, I think, 38. So we had even more tribal scholars and um, artists at center. And, you know, I think that's really important. And we're going to continue to build on, on that momentum. We had numerous other tribal events in, in the park. Uh, over the summer with different tribes engaging directly with visitors. We've got this bison conservation transfer program where we, I didn't mention earlier, but we capture bison. We test them for multiple years for the disease brucellosis. If they're, if they're deemed disease free, then we move 
bison to our partner tribes at Fort Peck, the Assiniboine and Sioux tribes. That's been very successful. We just doubled the capacity of that program. Why do they have to be tested over several years? Is it a hard, Is the disease really hard to detect? Well, it can, they can actually test negative initially, and then they can okay. test positive within a certain amount of time. Uh, so just because you have a negative test initially doesn't mean that they, they couldn't test positive. So there's a, a protocol that we follow that as a USDA protocol, and after a certain number of tests and a certain amount of time, there's almost no risk. They're deemed disease-free, and they can be transferred out of the park. Okay. So we've shipped around 300 bison to, I think, 23 tribes in 12 states wow. uh, since 2019. And then we just put a million dollars into doubling that capacity. So we'll be able to do that even more moving forward. And how are you identifying bison to, are they like, if they leave the Yellowstone boundary, you'll test so they them? They migrate that- every year down right. to the boundary and we'll capture whatever number that we need to, to fill the program. I know you were mentioning some of the other, other initiatives. You yeah. Could- I mean, we've got some great work going tribal colleges and setting up tribal internships. And yeah, I think the, the the biggest saying is really having substantive conversations about how we can partner. And, and um, yeah, I think that we'll continue to gain momentum in that area and develop these relationships even more into the future. Yeah. It sounds like, um, you know, in that area, you're looking forward to some of the future initiatives, but are there any other projects on the horizon with Yellowstone that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I've got five priorities that we're focused on primarily. So one we call focus on the core, which is the workforce. So within that priority, we focus on housing improvements, which I already mentioned what we're doing there. Yeah. We're focused heavily on mental health and wellness and providing, you know, everybody's been through a lot. Uh, this, this place can be a grinder, you know, providing the right level of services to our workforce is is really important. Our second priority we've talked about extensively today is strengthening the Yellowstone ecosystem. So, you know, a lot of geologic, natural, cultural resources, uh, where the resources that are most vulnerable to impacts, how do we continue to protect the progress that we've made and make additional progress in the future. Our third priority is uh, delivering a world-class visitor experience. So how we manage visitation, what amenities are available, those types of things, you know, public safety, you name it. Um, The third, the fourth is investing in infrastructure. And we have hundreds of millions of dollars in infrastructure projects going right now for new bridges and roads and trails and boardwalks and wastewater and water systems, things like that. And then the fifth is building coalitions and partnerships. So that runs from tribes to you know, members of Congress to communities and counties and states and nonprofits, not just here in around Yellowstone, but across America and even globally. Yeah. Keeps you busy, I suppose. <laughs> A lot yeah. going on. Yeah. Yep. And I just passed my five-year mark here. So, wow. you know, we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens, but Everybody, like I said, everybody's here for a certain amount of time. You try to do the best job that you can in the time that you're in these places. And then at some point, it'll be time for someone else to take over. Yeah. Appreciate your time and just sharing a little bit about your time at Yellowstone and then kind of what led you to that place. A way that I like to end interviews is just asking, what is something that you wish everyone knew about Yellowstone? Um, Regardless if they have or haven't been. And I know Yellowstone's a very well-known park, so... That might be a little bit harder to answer. Yeah, I don't think there's any one thing. I mean, I think if you ask 100 people that, that love Yellowstone, why they love Yellowstone, you'll get some similar answers in those 100 responses, but everybody's got a favorite thing. So we might yeah. want to 
go and look at birds. Some people want to go fish in five different places. Some people want to go watch wolves for three days straight. Some yeah. people want to go uh, geyser gaze in Old Faithful and Norris Geyser Basin or whatever the case is. So there's not really a single thing. I think the, and I, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased that the backcountry isn't busy. Um, <laughs> and, but, you know, the backcountry also is the real park. And um, for people that uh, I think get the opportunity to get actually away from the roads and out into Yellowstone's backcountry are treated to uh, something pretty special and kind of a, a vignette of primitive America in many ways uh, when they're able to do that. But that's not an advocation for people to start going out in the backcountry necessarily. But yeah. It's a great park and it represents some of the very best of America and we're lucky to have it. Yeah. Thanks for all that you do to steward it and continue to protect it and yeah, keep it as like a gem of our country and of the world, honestly. Yeah. Thanks, Maddie. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Cam. Appreciate you doing these series. It's important. Thanks so much for listening today. Our music was composed by Danielle Bees. If you liked this podcast, Rate, review, download, and tell your friends about it. This ensures the stories of our national parks and how they are run are shared. Listen to the other episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit us at whorunsthispark.com to learn more. I'm Maddie Pellman, and you've been listening to Who Runs This Park.